In June of 2017, our family took a trip to Colorado, and on the advice of Joe Shearer, we headed for the town of Buena Vista, which the locals inexplicably pronounce as Buena Vista. It's an eclectic mountain village situated beside the, the Arkansas River, and it's surrounded by the Collegiate Peaks, which are a bevy of 14ers, which provide some of the most majestic views in all of Colorado. And we arrived in Buena Vista in the early afternoon, and after a picnic lunch, we explored the town and the riverside. And we had no agenda, which is not nearly so romantic as it sounds when you have four kids under the age of 10. After about two hours, the kids were bored, and Ashley and I were exhausted, and so we, we headed to our motel for naps. And while the rest of the family slept, I got on my phone to try and do some of the research I should have done before we got there and to plan some places that we might go and some trails that we might hike and some sites that we might see over the next two days. And I soon learned that Buena Vista sits just 17 miles east of Cottonwood Pass, which at 12,126 feet is the second highest mountain pass in Colorado, situated right on the Continental Divide. So that evening, after a dinner of brick oven pizza, which was another Joe Shearer recommendation, we headed up to the pass. The drive was exhilarating. The road, Chaffee County Road 306, if you want to know, runs right beside Cottonwood Creek, which in early summer is roaring with fresh snowmelt. We drove with the windows down, we listened to the roaring water, we felt the air just blowing through the car, getting cleaner and thinner and crisper the higher and higher we climbed. And eventually, we arrived at the pass. It was just us and one other vehicle as the western slope of that road was closed that year for road work. We essentially had the mountains to ourselves. And before I knew it, Benjamin was halfway up the peak on the south side of the road. And so the rest of us had nothing else for it but to follow him up. And after a short but difficult climb, we found ourselves at the summit, somewhere around 12,500 feet, with the collegiate peaks all around. It was literally and metaphorically breathtaking. The six of us sat on a large boulder, a thousand feet above the tree line, surrounded by large patches of snow, the setting sun upon our backs, overlooking what felt like all of Colorado. And it was majestic, but it was more than that, it was holy. In that moment, all of life and all of reality and all of existence just seemed to make sense. That is something like what I feel when I open up Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. The paragraph before us, verses 21 to 26, is the summit of the Bible. It is the Mount Everest of biblical revelation. There is no higher peak in all of Scripture, and nothing else in the Bible can be rightly understood except when viewed from this summit. Eminent New Testament scholar Leon Morris called this, quote, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. 
And he was not overstating his case because nowhere in all of biblical revelation is the question of how a sinner can be made right in the sight of a holy God answered with such clarity and with such conviction and with such life-altering, dead-raising power. This is, after all, the question. Now, you may have come in, and undoubtedly many of you did, with a host of other questions rattling around in your mind. Where am I going to get enough money to pay the bills? What if the test comes back positive? How can I save my failing marriage? But all of those questions are secondary to the question of how you, a sinner, can be set in right relationship with the living God who is infinite and sovereign and omnipotent and ferociously holy. This was the question that Job asked, even in the midst of all of his suffering. If ever there was a man who had a lot going on in his mind, it was Job. And yet, what question was he asking underneath all of the rest? Job chapter 9, verse 2 Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. Job's friend Bildad also pondered this question in Job 25 verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, nor the stars pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Down through the ages, whenever men and women have been confronted with the holiness of God, whether in great demonstrations of His infinite power or in the faithful preaching of His infallible Word, it has provoked within them this recurring question over and over again. How can I, a sinner, be made right with this God? When the crowds heard John the Baptist preach by the Jordan River, when he was warning them of impending judgment and calling them to flee from the wrath that is to come, the crowds cried out, what then shall we do? What were they really asking? How can we be made right with this God whom we have so offended with our half-hearted worship and our superficial righteousness? When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and fell down at his feet and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was he really asking? How can I be made right with God because I know deep down inside that it is not well with my soul? When the crowds who listened to Peter preach at Pentecost were cut to the heart, they cried out in unison and in anguish, Brothers, what shall we do? What were they asking? How can we be set right with this God whose Son we have crucified and killed? When the Philippian jailer fell trembling before Paul and Silas in the aftermath of that great earthquake, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What was he asking? 
How can I be made right with this God whom you serve, of whom you've been singing and speaking all night long, this God whom I have provoked to anger with all of my idolatries and all of my sin? This is the question, the question of greatest significance, the question of greatest relevance, the question of greatest import. It may not be the question that was on your mind when it came in, but it should be. Because as our study of Romans 1.18 to 3.20 has devastatingly revealed, all men in all places, at all times, everywhere, without exception, even you, stand guilty before the holy God and are under his wrath, which is already being revealed from heaven against us. And as the last two verses of that passage summarized and clarified, There is no hope whatever in our own supposed goodness, in our own righteousness, in our own efforts to please God through works of the law. Chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul brought that first section of Romans to a summation by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We spent the better part of four months tracing our way through Paul's devastating indictment of the human race, and it has been intended to cut out from underneath us all pretension, all boasting, all hope in ourselves, and to leave us in total darkness, asking in utter desperation, then how can I be made right with God if not by doing more and trying harder to be better? That is by works of the law. Is there any hope for sinners? And then Paul comes into us at our deepest and darkest and most despairing in verse 21, and he says, Yes, yes, there is hope. And it begins with those two little words, but now. Here, in Romans 3.21 is where the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings upon the pages of Romans and upon the darkness of our hearts. This passage, Romans 3.21-26, to 26, is the nucleus of the gospel sun and its rays emanate throughout the rest of Scripture. This is the summit of the Bible. And all of the answers to all of those questions, which are really in the end just one question, only make sense in light of what Paul writes in these verses. This, beloved, is the answer to your question of how a sinner can be made right in the sight of God. Now, I began working on this passage in early January, and for a time, I have to confess, I was rather paralyzed by it. I mean, how exactly does one preach, quote, the single most important paragraph ever written, end quote? How does one do justice to the magnificent panorama available to us from the summit of biblical revelation? And I found that I was putting a tremendous amount of pressure upon myself until the Lord gave me a mercifully gentle 
rebuke from a familiar passage. I remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he was describing to them how he had first brought them the gospel. He said, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And in that moment, the Lord was reminding me that I'm not preaching for your praise, I'm preaching so that we might experience His power. I want to see the demonstration of the Spirit and of power among us. I don't want your faith to rest in my eloquence or my rhetorical abilities. And if that's why you've come, your faith is erected upon sand. According to Paul, if I want your faith to rest in the power of God, then you need to see that power demonstrated in the Spirit. And if the Spirit is going to demonstrate the omnipotent power of God among us, then I need to get out of the way with my lofty speech and my plausible words of wisdom, and I need to determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Human wisdom and human eloquence get in the way of the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Not because God can't work through human wisdom and human eloquence, but because He won't. He will not share the spotlight. He will not share with me the praise that is due only to Him. So how do I intend to preach the greatest text in the Bible? The single most important paragraph ever written. I'm going to try to preach it simply, clearly, and straightforwardly, and then I'm going to get out of the way. I want you to imagine my family sitting up on that boulder 500 feet above Cottonwood Pass, overlooking the breathtaking beauty of the, of the Rocky Mountains at sunset, and then imagine me trying to stand in front of them, blocking their view of the landscape whilst reciting the geological history of the Rockies. The Rocky Mountains need no tour guide. They need no explanation. They are awe-inspiring and self-authenticating in and of themselves. And so is this text. It needs no adornment. It needs no illustration. It need only be proclaimed, and it will testify among us to its own glory and power. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is to walk slowly and simply and clearly through Romans 3, 21 to 31, and we're going to pray together that God would demonstrate His glory and power in the Spirit. My hope and my prayer is that by the end of February, by the end of these four weeks, you will know the answer to the question, the question, the question of how a sinner, any sinner, you, may be made right in the sight of God, and furthermore, that you would know that you yourself are right, are justified in His sight. Today we're going to focus upon verses 21 and 22, in which Paul says this, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there is hope for us. There is hope for sinners because the righteousness of God has now been manifested. Paul makes four points concerning this righteousness. First, he says that this righteousness of God is historical. Why is there hope for sinners? There's nothing at all in the last two chapters, ever since verse 18 of chapter 1, that has given any reason for hope. I mean, sure, Paul has announced that there's salvation for the righteous. There's eternal life for those who through patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, 2-7. But then he went on to declare that none, in fact, is righteous and that there is none who seeks for God, 3, 10, and 11. Sure, Paul has promised that there is glory and honor and peace for those who do good, 2.10, but then he he turned right around and he said that there is, in fact, no one who does good, 3.12. When it comes to the fate of sinners, Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is all death and darkness and wrath and damnation. There is no hope for sinners anywhere in these chapters. These chapters have left us as they were intended to with our mouths silenced before God, justly condemned for our failure to honor God as God. That is to love Him and trust Him and honor Him and obey Him and enjoy Him as He so richly deserves. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, something has happened now that has changed the fate of sinners. Something has transpired in time and in history and in space to bring hope to the hopeless and salvation to the damned. That something, according to Paul, is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. Okay, but, but wait. Wouldn't the manifestation of God's righteousness be Bad news for the unrighteous? That's what Luther thought as he labored over the text of Romans 1.17 where Paul says that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. See, Luther couldn't understand how Paul could, could call the righteousness of God gospel. Good news. How is the righteousness of God being revealed good news For sinners, isn't it the righteousness of God that justly condemns sinners and punishes them in wrath? I mean, if you are a sinner, the last thing you want to see manifested is the righteousness of a holy God. What you want and what you need is God's mercy. But, what if there were a way for God to be both righteous and merciful towards sinners? What if there were a way for God to be just and the justifier of the unrighteous? But now, Paul says, there is. 
the righteousness of God has been manifested in the historical death of Jesus Christ for sinners. This is going to be Paul's point in verses 25 to 26 where he says that God put Christ forward to be a propitiation. Okay, that, that's a word which means a, an atoning, wrath-absorbing satisfaction, a sacrifice by his blood. And that God did this in order to demonstrate, that is manifest, his righteousness so that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God has now manifested his righteousness, verse 21, in this way, verse 25, by putting Jesus, the infinite, eternal, holy Son of God, to death in the place of sinners. Christ's death on the cross demonstrated or manifested the fact that God is righteous in his hatred and punishment of sin. God is not a God who sweeps sin under the carpet. He's not a God who ignores injustice or looks the other way when evil is committed. He is a God who judges evil and executes its just penalty without partiality. But now, Paul says, now that God's righteous judgment has been manifested in the death of Christ on the cross... God's righteous mercy can be revealed in justifying those who have faith in Jesus. There could be no mercy, there could be no salvation, there could be no gospel apart from the manifestation of God's righteousness in the historical death of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's hard to live by faith and not by sight. Sometimes disturbing thoughts will creep into my head and suggest things like, is, is, is this even true? I mean, I've, I've, I've banked my life upon this book and the gospel which it proclaims, but, but what if it's not true? That is an intellectual rabbit hole from which many have never emerged. That's why this point, that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel and manifested in the historical death of Christ is so important to me, so life-giving to me, so faith-building to me. I know that Jesus died in a particular place at a particular point in time and space and history. And I know that he rose again from the dead on the third day. Those are indisputable historical facts available to all who are willing to face the truth and its implications. And because they are historical facts, they are unchanging, unlike my feelings, which are subject to every wind of change. The gospel on which I have banked my life and rested my immortal soul is a finished, accomplished fact of history which cannot be denied and that gives me a solid foundation on which to construct my hope and my faith. If Jesus died and rose again, then I can trust him because he is Lord of all. 
I can trust his word. I can trust his apostles whom he sent into the world and upon whom he set his seal. And I can trust his gospel which they proclaimed. I can have hope as a sinner because now in time, in space, in history, on a particular mountain overlooking Jerusalem at a particular day in a particular place, Jesus Christ, the God-man, was crucified for me. Second, the righteousness of God is a legal righteousness. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul says that this righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. How then can you say that it's a legal righteousness, that is a righteousness of the law? Aren't you, pastor, saying the exact opposite of what Paul is saying? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. The justifying righteousness of God, okay, that righteousness by which God justifies the ungodly through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, is not a legal fiction. God does not save sinners through judicial sleight of hand. He doesn't save sinners through legal loopholes. He did not set aside his law in order to save you. Eternal life is as it has always been the just reward for perfect righteousness. That was the law which God instituted from creation. When God first created man, he set him in the garden and he placed before him a law and a test. He put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in that garden with the man and the woman. And he said to the man, if you will trust and obey me, there's the obedience of faith coming back again, by resisting temptation and not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I will grant you to eat from the tree of life and live in everlasting blessedness forever. But if he gave in to temptation, if he ate from that forbidden tree, if he reached for that knowledge which belongs rightly to God alone, rejecting the way of faith, rejecting the way of obedience, he would be forever barred from the tree of life and he would live forever under God's curse. That was the law that God established in creation. Believe and obey and you'll live forever in blessing disbelieve, disobey, and you'll suffer forever under God's everlasting curse. That standard, that law established in creation has not changed. God remains ever the same and so does his law. It remains a fixed and immutable standard. Be righteous, that is believe and obey God and you will live. Be unrighteous, that is disbelieve and disobey God, and you will die. So says Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, to those who believe and obey, he will give eternal life. 
But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That is nothing else than a restatement of the law established in creation. Those who are righteous will receive eternal life. Those who are unrighteous will receive everlasting wrath and fury. Make no mistake, beloved, no one will receive eternal life who is not righteous according to that law. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then how can anyone be saved? For as Paul has devastatingly proven, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not a man, not a woman, not a child on the face of this earth or on the pages of human history has kept the law. None have believed and obeyed God perfectly, except one. Jesus did what we could not do. He kept the law in perfect righteousness. He believed God perfectly. He obeyed God infallibly. He rendered to God the righteousness required by the law, the righteousness which was God's due as our creator, and therefore he received from God the reward of righteousness which is everlasting life in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, as we have seen and as we will see, Jesus died under the curse of God's wrath, bearing the just penalty of unrighteousness. And through the grace of substitution, through the wonder of imputation, Jesus' righteousness is accounted to us along with the reward which he earned. And our unrighteousness was accounted to him along with its penalty which we deserved. This is justification. This has, has how God saves sinners through the law apart from the law. In the end, sinners are saved by a legal righteousness. In the end, we are saved by works of the law, just not our own. In the end, we are saved by a righteousness which merits eternal life. It's just not our own merit. The reason why Paul says that this righteousness is manifested apart from the law is because this righteousness, this work, this merit is not our own. It is Christ's. That's why Luther referred to the righteousness of verse 21 as an alien righteousness, a righteousness extra nos, a righteousness out of ourselves, outside of us. This righteousness is apart from the law because it is not achieved through works of the law. It is received through faith in Christ. Jesus achieved it. We receive it. It is the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In justification... God treats us as if we had kept the law. And at the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had broken the law. In justification, God gives us a righteousness that we did not achieve and a reward that we did not earn. God saves sinners by means of a legal righteousness. He saves us in a way that is lawful, 
a way that is according to the law, a way that does not violate his own justice and righteousness. Did he not promise eternal life to those who keep the law? And that's exactly what he gives. God has kept his word, he has upheld his law, and yet he has been exceedingly merciful. For we receive eternal life not by our own law-keeping righteousness, but through the law-keeping righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith and faith alone. Furthermore, this mercy is not new, says Paul. It's been the hope of all the faithful down throughout the ages. For Paul says that the justifying righteousness which has now been manifested in the historic death of Jesus Christ was witnessed to throughout the law and the prophets. Now I could literally spend an entire sermon just tracing justification by faith alone throughout the Old Testament. And it would be a whole lot of fun, but we don't have time this morning. So I'm going to just give you two examples of justification by faith alone. One from the very beginning of the law, and the other from the very end of the prophets. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, when they disobeyed God's command and they ate from the forbidden tree, they fell from the original righteousness wherein they were created, the righteousness by which they had been, quote, naked and unashamed. Instantly when they fell, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they realized that they lacked the righteousness which previously had clothed them in God's sight and they were ashamed to stand before God. Not ashamed to stand before one another primarily for they were husband and wife. Ashamed to stand before God. That's why they hid themselves. Not from one another, but from Him. So they hastily sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness as if garments of their own making, garments of works, garments of law could cover their shame and hide their sin from God. Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid, himself, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then when God had dealt with their sin and pronounced their just punishment, before he cast them out of the garden, out of his presence, and excluded them from the tree of life, he did something for them which was exceedingly merciful. Verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. The Lord killed an innocent animal. It's where skins come from. He sacrificed it in their presence, shedding its blood in order to clothe them. An innocent sacrifice died in order that the sinful man and woman might stand before God. God clothed them. He covered their nakedness and their shame and their sin in garments of his own making, garments which he made through the shedding of innocent blood. And in doing so, God taught the man and the woman and all of their descendants after them that the only way for sinners to stand in the sight of a holy God was not by their own works, not by their own 
fig leaves, not by their own futile attempts to cover their own sin, but only through faith in the blood of a sacrifice which alone can cover sin and shame. If you're going to come into my presence now, Adam, you've got to come in faith through the shedding of blood. And Adam and Eve taught their sons this lesson. Abel believed it, and so by faith he brought before the Lord the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Cain did not believe, and so he brought before the Lord the work of his own hands produced through the sweat of his own brow. That's why the Lord accepted Abel but rejected Cain. From the very beginning of the law, then, it is established that no one will be acceptable in the sight of God by the works of their own hands, but only insofar as they are clothed by faith through the shedding of the blood of a sacrifice. And we turn to the very end of the prophets in Zechariah chapter 3, one of the last books of the Old Testament. And Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest of Israel, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at Joshua's right hand, accusing him before the Lord for his sins. You can't be here. Look at how filthy you are. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Note that Satan was not wrong. Joshua was filthy. Unfit to stand in the presence of the holy God. But the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you. I will clothe you in pure vestments. So how did the angel of the Lord answer Satan's accusations concerning Joshua's sin and his unworthiness to stand before the Lord? By taking away his filthy garments and exchanging them for spotless garments of righteousness. A righteousness which Joshua did not earn. A righteousness for which he did not work. A righteousness that was granted to Joshua apart from the law. We could go on and on, but you get the point. Paul says that the righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. And he's not saying that the righteousness which justifies sinners, used to come through works of the law, but now it comes through faith. Rather, he's saying that the justifying righteousness of which the law and the prophets spoke, the only righteousness which has ever or will ever justify, has now become a reality because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One final point remains to be made this morning. This righteousness of God, this historic, legal, biblical righteousness is now available through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, this righteousness of God is now universal. That is, universally available through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Once again, Paul is zealous here to show that the righteousness of God is available to Gentile as well as Jew. But the point is more expansive than even that, as the next line proves. Just let your eyes continue. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
There is no distinction between sinners, for all have fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, says Paul, there is no distinction in the availability of God's justifying righteousness. Just as all have sinned, so may all be saved by receiving this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know Chances are there's some of you here who have struggled or are struggling with questions of, would God even accept me? I'm quite sure none of these people would if they'd known what I'd done. And you know that God does know, and that destroys your confidence that God would receive you if you would come to Him. And so I would just point out to you that Paul's logic goes like this. If you're in verse 23, you can be in verse 22. If you're among those who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, you're among those who can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how filthy your past or how stained your garments. If you will acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God slain and sacrificed on the cross for your sins, you will receive the justifying righteousness of God. So are you guilty this morning? Are you like Adam and Eve? Naked and exposed and ashamed before the blazing holiness of God? You can be clothed in the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus. Are you like Joshua appearing before the Lord this morning in filthy garments of sin? Garments stained by greed or lust or idolatry? Jesus is willing to take your filthy garments from you and to clothe you in the spotless garments of His very own righteousness. And all you must do is receive it from Him by faith. By faith, you must call out to Him in prayer. Reach out empty hands in prayer, and take from Him the righteousness which He offers, and take it and and clothe yourself with it. Wrap yourself in the righteousness of Jesus. And you will be able to stand in the presence of a holy God on the day of judgment. You'll be able to stand in the presence of God, acceptable in His sight, clean and pure and holy. This beloved is the beginning of the gospel of Christ, and it is glorious.